That's our new series. It's called The Bridge from Inward Beliefs to Outward Benefits. The idea is how are we facing outward as a church? How do we face outward as a church? How do we go public with our faith? Not just a, a private thing, but how do we step out into public with our faith? Forty million people who used to go to church no longer go to church. Over the last few decades, 40 million people have stopped going to church. Now, that, that sounds pretty bad. But in, in this new book called De-Churching, The Great De-Churching, the take-home message is not about doom and gloom. Here's the take-home message. Most of those people would come back to church with a personal invitation. You say, well, okay, that's great. People who are already in a, a pattern or at least culturally uh, acquainted with the church would come back to church. What about people who are far from God, who don't know Christ? How do we face them? I want to read to you a quotation. It's going to surprise you who it is. Because who it is is the punchline. It says this, Just as plants need sun and water, and good soil to thrive, people need love, work, and a connection to something larger. Now, who said this? Jonathan Haidt, who is a professor at uh, New York University. He's an atheist, but he recognizes that human beings have to be part of something greater than themselves. Even our atheist scholars are almost, almost naming the church to come back out into public. You know, when I was, was growing up, one of the catchphrases was, don't push your beliefs on me. It was said over and over again. And over the last few decades, we've, we've sort of shrunken back. We've, we've taken that seriously. We've, we've, we've considered that it's res only respectful to be silent about the things that matter most out in public. And what we're finding is that do-it-yourself meaning is putting a crushing load on things like families and travel ball and careers and relationships. Putting a crushing load of meaning on things that were only created by the one who makes life meaningful. So how do we face outward with our faith? How do we go public with our faith? It's an age of the attention economy. And everyone seems to have a platform of some kind. What if? What if we took what Scripture says seriously and we began to reach out with the Great Commission? And what if our platform for our message were a bridge. From the Word of God, 2 Corinthians 5, starting with verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is also known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. 
For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting us and to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. May God bless us through this, his holy word. Let us pray. Father, bless us now to receive your word, not just into our thoughts, and not only into our hearts, but into our full lives as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know, most Christians who fear going public with their faith, being more public and outward with their faith, more expressive with their faith, don't like doing it because of the ones who do. I was at a tailgate a few weeks ago, and a guy came walking by, and he had, uh, he had built into the frame of his body PVC pipes that went up. It looked like, I, I don't know, maybe 12 or 15 feet. And he had threatening signs. They were black with white writing on them. And he was talking over a loudspeaker and he was walking up and down. People are, you know, sort of trying to balance their deviled eggs, you know, on one plate and, and you know, some sort of libation in the other. And, and he's walking around uh, barking at them about uh, dark things, trying to intimidate them into believing. When did Jesus do that? You know, the only time you see Jesus turning over tables is when he's getting upset at religious people, at moralists. Jesus stepped out. Jesus built bridges. Jesus reached out. I think a lot of times we're concerned about being lumped in with people who have traded the gospel for legalism, for uh, a religious version of, of meanness, really, is what it is, of somebody who, who's being better than. So how do we do better? You know, our cultural moment is defined by difference. It's defined by a chasm of differences. How do we bridge that gap? And somebody said that, uh, that we were called to be fishers of men, but we have become 
a, a generation of people who are only tending the aquarium? How do we reach out again? And the answer is, is a bridge. To, to help people understand, as we face outward as Christians, as a church, that God is in the redemption business. That what he defined, the way he defines ministry itself is the word reconciliation. God is in the business of putting the world and us back together. So let's look at the way that the gospel puts us back together. Puts us back together, you back together. Puts other people back together. Puts relationships back together. You, others, and relationships. First, reconciliation is about putting you back together with you. Putting you back together with you. To be uh, showing you your need for dependence and creating more of you and more of a foundation for you on that foundation of dependence. In other words, integrity. Putting you back together. You know, I, I want you to see this image of a bridge. If we're going to be reaching out, the first side of the bridge is you. Anchored. That the gospel is anchoring you. That there is a sense of integrity. Not that you've arrived. Not that you're perfect. Not that your life is wrinkle-free. But on the contrary, that you have confidence that despite all of the wrinkles, there is a foundation that's so much deeper than that. And so you have confidence to reach out because of what God is doing in you. Verse, verse 11 he's, and, and 12 and 13, here Paul is saying we persuade others. But then he goes into saying, look, we're not trying to, we're not trying to commend ourselves to you. We're trying to give you the basis for which if, if we're going to put this church back together, you know, the Corinthian church was a mess. And some people were, were slow to come back and to be put back together. And, and he's saying, if, if you're going to appeal to us as an authority to bring order to this church again, then don't think that I'm, I'm commending myself. We're giving you cause to commend us for others that we're the ones who are speaking according to the gospel. And, and so what's Paul saying? He's saying, on the contrary, I don't have it all together. The basis of my authority is not my outward appearance. He's saying the exact opposite. He's confronting those who are all about outward appearances. And Paul is saying from the inside out, the gospel is putting us back together again. I, I spent some time recently with one of my college roommates, he gave me permission to share this with you. Um, he's been working on a lot of unfinished business in his life. This is somebody who uh, I admire, just somebody who's just got such an amazing family, uh, incredible history. Uh, just, the, just the guy, he's, he's, he's an all-American guy, the guy who walks in the room and everybody wants to talk to him. He has been what's called doing the work of unfinished business. It is powerful to see somebody do that. He doesn't have to ask those tough questions. Now, he's, he's, he's in a lot of ways, his life has been on sort of a crest of a wave. But he's doing the work. What 
if, what if we as Christians on this side of the bridge were understood to be those who are doing the work? Not, not projecting what we want people to see, not saying I've got a wrinkle-free life, but, but people who are known for being congru- congruent from the inside out, more congruent. Why? Because they're becoming more self-aware, because they're doing the work. This is what Paul is saying. The gospel gives us the power to do the work, to, to let God put us back together again in a broken world with, with imperfect parents, with flawed families. And we come and we feel those wounds and we see those wounds and we mess it up too. <laughs> you know, so many, so many times, you know, I, I sit with couples when they're just starting and uh, when they're asking, they want to talk about parenting and what are your advice? I said, don't worry, you're going to mess this up too. But here is somebody who's doing the work. And this is what Paul's saying. He's saying, look, we're not commending ourselves on the basis of what you see or on the basis of having it all together or on the basis of having arrived, but on the basis of the gospel. You know, Luther called the church, Martin Luther, back in 1517, when he nailed those 95 theses to the wall, he, he was looking at a church all about externals, saying, look, if you just get the behaviors right, if you just... Uh, they were selling these things called indulgences. If you wanted to have your sins forgiven, you know, you're, you're dealing with a guilty conscience, then you, know, you, you purchase a certain number of these certificates and then you can go to church and you can have certain sins forgiven. And, and Luther's saying, what happened to the gospel? What happened to the grace of God that puts us back together from the inside out? You know, he died for this message. He was called before... A, a really a political council, a powerful council in Germany at the time called the Diet of Worms. And, and he, was, he was drawn up on charges and all he had to do was recant. And here are his favorite words. He says, here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. What are we talking about here? We're talking about not this day, date, I did this, I made this commitment, I walked this aisle kind of story of faith, but a story of dependence. Dependence. What Paul is commending to the church is what has been commended to him, the gospel of grace, that we depend on God. In the second service, we're going to be baptizing two, two babies. Dependent upon their parents. It's an image of our graceful new life in Christ. Not a story of decision, but of dependence. See, that's this side of the bridge. People are trying to make their own meaning out in the marketplace, out in their world. They're trying to take second things like all of God's good gifts and trying to vest them with meaning. And it's a crushing load that they're putting on second things. You have first things. The grace of God that has given you the freedom to be flawed out in public, to be flawed and to say, yeah, but here I stand. I stand in the grace of God, the word of God. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. 
the first part of the bridge that helps us face outward, that helps us to, 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 to extend the gospel over the chasms of life, over the deep differences that, that we have created in our culture. The first part of the bridge is anchoring it in the integrity of a life that is being changed, dependent on the grace of God. Well, the second, the second is that God is not only putting us back together, but he's putting others back together and he, he wants to put others back together and, and he wants you to tell them that they are invited to this same posture of dependence. So the other side of the bridge is to meet people in a place where you're affirming their worth. Affirming their worth. That God is in the business of redeeming the day, redeeming things, putting people, reconciling people to themselves. And you have a story of deep affirmation and worth. Verses 15 and 16, let's look back at there. It says, and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Another translation says, according to the world. We regard no one according to a worldly perspective or a fleshly perspective, a competitive perspective, a hierarchical perspective, a strong eat the weak kind of perspective. We regard no one that way anymore. In her book, uh, Confronting Christianity, Rebecca McLaughlin tells a story about the untouchables, the Dalits of India. Are you all familiar with the caste system of India? It's very hierarchical. When, uh, when India won its freedom, it began to push back against this extreme caste system that they have, but it remains, and in some places, it's unchanged. Some places in India. The Dalits are called the untouchables. The untouchables. The lowest caste in the caste system. Untouchables. Imagine growing up being somebody who was called an untouchable. Here's what uh, Rebecca says. Every day in a newspaper in India, you can read of an untouchable being beaten or killed for wearing sandals or riding a bicycle. Still today. This was the ancient world. This was normal. That, that picture was the norm in the ancient world. Aristotle, Plato, they considered children to be property. And so infants were routinely cast out when, when there was a flaw or it was not the gender that they wanted or there was any reason they were, children, infants were cast out onto trash heaps. This was the world before Christ. It's almost becoming a consensus now, not just among Christian scholars, but even among secular scholars, that Christianity was the pivot point from strong eat weak to vested worth in every human life. Human rights began with Christianity. We, we talk about it. We have a Christless Christianity that we talk about out in the open. 
but we've lost the story and really the basic history behind it. Here's how uh, N.T. Wright puts it. He says, Christianity, with its insistence on the unique value of each individual human being for whom Christ died, was the real source of the notion of human rights. Here's the warning that, that we should all internalize. We take human rights for granted, but they can be lost. And there are parts of the world where they have never been found. It is the story, the history, the picture of the Creator reaching out, bridging the chasm between us and Him. It is that picture of Christ being in the very nature of God. Not considering equality with God as something to be grasped, but humbled himself and became obedient unto death. He took on the nature of a servant. What does that say? On the far end of the bridge, what does that say? What message are we sending to people when we reach out and we affirm their worth? Not just in the abstract. Not just saying, hey, we have this um, thing called Christianity and we think you, you would benefit from it. We think we have the truth and you need to come up to our side. We, we, we're over here on this side of the bridge and we think you need to cross over here and, uh, and start obeying the way. Jesus didn't send an abstraction. He came himself. He took on the nature of a human being. What does that say about your worth? What does Christianity say to the world, to the person, to the, on the other side of the bridge? What does it say about their worth? Many years ago, uh, there was a, a gathering of youth workers, a national gathering of youth workers, people who, from Young Life, FCA, uh, student ministries across the United States came together, and they listened to a keynote address by a guy named Guy Dowd. Have you heard about Guy Dowd? Guy Dowd was the national teacher of the year that year, and he spoke to this gathering and he told a story that I think has become sort of kind of famous in some circles, but it's a story of his daughter who was afraid to go to bed. And she was up there in her bedroom and she kept making excuses to come down. She kept, then she would admit that she was afraid there was something in the closet or some, she heard some noise into the bed. And her father kept sending her back up there saying, you remember, Jesus is with you. There's nowhere you can go to flee from his spirit. He, Jesus is with you. Finally, she came down and she said, I know you keep telling me that Jesus is with me, but I really need somebody with skin on. <laughs> Isn't this the message that, that God is sending? He's saying we're making, God is making his appeal now through you. You, you know, the, originally being called a Christian wasn't a, it wasn't a compliment. Christian, it meant little Christs. And it's one of these things where you make lemonade out of lemon, lemons. You know, it's like, okay, well, we'll, we'll own it. Yeah, we're little Christs. You are Jesus with skin on. To the people in your world, in your sphere of influence, God is making his reconciling appeal through you. And when you step out towards somebody 
and you engage them under the news, under the sports, under the weather, when you want to draw out what's going on with them, when you invite them into a conversation about things that matter most, have confidence that what you're saying to that person, that what you have to bring to that person is not, I've got the truth and you're an idiot. (laughs) It is, in fact, you are valuable enough for me to take this risk. And this is the very experience that I've had with the gospel of grace myself. This is, this is the far end of the bridge that Christianity puts people back together, putting you back together with you. An invitation to, to speak life into other people that their life matters that they can have a foundation for life as well. And you say, well, I know, but people want to debate. They want to be right. They want to bring up all the positions and issues, and they want to say, but what about? You know, about the whataboutisms, right? Uh, as soon as you make a statement, someone will find an exception and will say, but what about? And we get drawn into those things. And so... I think we have to understand that the final move of what Paul is doing here is that that God, in being in the redemption business, in giving us the ministry of reconciliation, is about putting relationships back together. And so understanding how we're to face outward as a church, how we're to reach out as individual Christians, means that we need to learn to win the person and not the argument. We need to learn how to win people and not arguments. You can see at the beginning of the passage, he says, you know, being convinced ourselves, we persuade others. Yes, he's trying to persuade, but on what basis? On the basis that, that I was crushed. What he's saying is on the basis that I was, I was crushed under the load, that I was broken, a broken person. I talked to somebody recently who's going to celebrate recovery, and it's just amazing that how the whole recovery um, field is a metaphor for the Christian life. The freedom to say I'm broken. The freedom to say I don't have it all together. The freedom to say that I have a, I, I'm dependent on, on a higher power, namely on Jesus. The freedom to say that is a freedom everyone is looking for. And so we're in the business of making an appeal on the basis of grace, not on the basis that we have something and they don't, not on the basis that we're better than. In other words, not on the basis of a worldly point of view that says, I, you know, always this one-upsmanship, a religious version of the same sort of competitive thing that you run into in conversations where you're invited, right? And people will try to light you on fire. They will. Yours is to stay what? Inflammable. Verse 18, he's saying, God is making his appeal through us. He has entrusted. And see, that's where the stewardship series comes in here. What, when we're talking about stewardship, we're talking about the fact that we're be, we've been giving a, given a sacred trust. We are stewards of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we're talking about these next few weeks. How do we steward that well? It's been entrusted to us. 
And so, again, let me repeat the point here as we come to a close, that the way we engage, you say, how do we engage? Yeah, it all sounds good. You know, I've, I, God's putting me back together. He's, he's affirming people who are outside the fold. And I move towards them, and I move towards them with a great message that says that they're, they're valuable. But they want to debate. They want to, they want to question. They want to say, what about? And so what are, we, what are we to do? We are to win the person and not the argument. You know, you can, you can win arguments and not the person. Anybody who's been married for about five minutes has discovered that. I, I remember uh, watching a romantic comedy one time, and there, there was a, a woman who, who just, she had this, this um, nemesis, and she just kept running into this person and never had the right line. You know, always thought later, it just sort of, oh, I wish I'd said this. You know, you've been in that position where it's like, that person said this to me. Oh, if I just, mm, just kind of stuck the knife into the side, or if I had just sort of, just turn it around on them. And you always think of that later. And she just sort of making that comment that we all feel, you know, oh, later on, I, I, I thought of just the best response to their put down. And then there's this scene where she, she, she's able to come up with the, the, the rejoinder, the, the, the return fire at just the right time. And it leaves her empty. She won the argument, but not the person. You can win an argument and not the person. We're called to win people. It amazes me in two different ways. When people have an agenda and they prize their agenda over a relationship. Let's just sit, about, sit with that for a minute. It may be you. Sometimes it's me. To think of my agenda as being more important than the relationship he said, well, can't you do both? Yes. But relationships first. Mend the relationship, then work on the agenda. You see, part of the problem of the, the image that I painted for you at that tailgate is that someone arrived not to build relationships, but to push an agenda. Now, Jesus didn't come to push an agenda. He came to reconcile the world to himself. This is the gospel. This is what we have to offer. So why are you intimidated by it? Why am I intimidated by facing outward with the most beautiful story that's ever been told that God was reconciling us to himself? And yet so often we get in this mode where we think I'm right and I have to convince the other person that they're wrong and I'm gonna do that and I'm gonna make them essentially an object that I step on to get my way. It amazes me, number one, when people put their personal agenda, even a faith-based agenda, over the relationship. No. But isn't it powerful? And this amazes me too. When people set aside their personal agenda for the relationship. Not just placating, not just people-pleasing. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the primacy of building lines of communication. That's the bridge. If you want to share the things that matter most, you've got to build the bridge first. You know, Psalm 126 is one of those psalms of ascent. And uh, for the longest time, I wondered what this line really meant. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. 
what are they sowing? They're sowing seeds with tears. Why? Well, in the, a place called the Sahel, which is just south of the Sahara Desert, uh, it's so arid there that halfway through the year they run out of grain. And so they cannot feed their families. They, they feed them just gruel, like a half a cup of porridge. There's a story about a, a child who went to the barn and reached in and found some grain and said, Dad, we have grain. We can, make, you know, we can make whatever we want. And he said, no, son, that is to be planted for next year's harvest. If, if we didn't plant it, we'd have nothing in the harvest. And see, you take that grain that you know would feed your family and to throw it into the ground. And this is what we're being called to do, to take part of our livelihood and invest it in such a way that there will be a great harvest to come. Next, next week, we're going to talk about doing that across cultures. And then the following week, we're going to have the culminating Sunday on doing that across generations. Let's pray together. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, how we thank you that you stepped out across the divide first. And so this morning, Lord, in this closing moment, would you help us to follow in your footsteps, reconciling the world. Through Jesus we pray it, amen.